We're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 4 today, so I encourage you to turn your attention there. We're talking about service today, serving with a proper mindset. I have a soccer player um, who is one of the kindest young men that you will ever meet. He has a smile on his face almost all of the time, and he has an attitude that won't quit no matter how difficult things may be. The problem with this player is that he is really undersized and doesn't have a lot of athletic ability in his body. Part of it comes from a tough childhood. Um, he's got some physical limitations he was born with, and so it's prevented him from properly developing at a normal rate with his peers, and he just has never caught up. Um, this player did absolutely everything that I asked of him during off-season conditioning. Every run was at every practice. He signed up for a gym class um, called Bigger, Faster, Stronger so that he could get bigger, faster, and stronger. And while he has a big heart and a huge desire to play varsity, his uh, skills and ability are really better suited for a C team. And so when we made the teams, he came up to me, he was pretty upset, and he said, I thought I would be varsity this year instead of on the C team. And so I had to have one of those hard, um, honest conversations that a coach oftentimes has. Uh, and I told him, you know, I wish I could, I could put his confidence into the body of the kids who have the size and strength but not the heart. He did exactly what I knew he would do because um, I've coached him for three years now. He swallowed hard, he wiped his tears and uh, put a smile on his face and went to work. And while he had an improper view of his skills and his abilities, he was blessed with parents that have instilled upon him a tremendous work ethic, team-first perspective, and an ability to handle any adversity. And I wish I had 12 of him, because we could actually do something as a team. Part of growing up is developing a proper self-awareness and a proper mindset about life. God gives us um, structures to help ensure that that happens if we are willing to learn the lessons we need to learn. We're going to talk about service today. The last couple of weeks we've talked about the need for unity. As, as Paul has introduced this letter we looked at several weeks ago, uh, he, he tells them, listen, you need to act in the way that you already are. You need to be who you already are that you are called, that you are, are, are saved, that you belong to Jesus. And so you need to live life acting as if that's a reality in your life. And from that point on, it kind of comes from this high point of this is the, the greatest thing that we can be, a child of God, and he begins to address a series of issues that this church at Corinth had. Just like our church and any other church that you've been a part of um, or visited or heard about, there's no such thing as a perfect church. They all have problems. And Corinth had a lot of problems. And we're going to look at some of these, and, and hopefully some of the problems that they have we never have to deal with. But the great thing is, is that because Paul hit, hit, addressed these things head on, it gives us a little bit of a framework, a roadmap to know how to handle some of these things. And so one of the, the great issues that they had, the great struggles that the church at Corinth had, was, was a problem with unity. There were cliques. There were factions. There were some that were were of the Paul camp. There were some that were of the Apollos camp. There were some that were of the Peter camp. And there were some that were just, you know, old school, we're just following Jesus kind of camp. 
But the end result was, was is that these, these factions that were following various teachers that became cliques were really not functioning together. And so he begins this conversation with the, the church at Corinth saying, listen, we need, to, we need to learn to function together. We all have differences. We all have differences of opinions. We have differences uh, of theological perspectives and, and emphases. And yet there is a uniformity, a union that we can find in Christ. That we need to remember who we are in Christ and to find that common ground. Because if we don't find unity together to learn to function together, we can't deal with any of the other problems that the church in Corinth was facing or any of the problems that we might face or any other church that you're part of might face. We need to be who we are. We are rescued by God's grace through Jesus to act like what we were already declared to be. So we pursue unity. We pursue unity in three different ways. As he emphasized, he said we pursue unity under the cross of Jesus. Now this, this cross of Jesus, which is other name for the gospel, is offensive. It's offensive to the Greeks. It's illogical to them, to the Jews who are seeking signs and, and wonders. It wasn't wonderful enough and, and wasn't big enough sign. And it was a stumbling block to both Jews and Gentiles. And it's in many ways is an illogical thing. Because we get life from death, we get uh, strength from weakness, we get hope from despair. But that's the, the, the irrationality of the gospel. We, are, we should be united under the cross of Jesus. We should be united under the wisdom of God. The, the word of God should be all that we, unites us. That we can have opinions and thoughts about all kinds of issues in the world and, and, and all kinds of uh, uh, desires and preferences that we personally may like. But it is the word of God that should unite us, that, that we find uh, when we have disagreements, we go there to find some, some strength and some wisdom, that we're united under the wisdom of God. And then we, well, last week we looked at pursuing unity by choosing to grow up and mature. It's a choice that we make. We have to choose to grow up and to mature. So we're going to continue this idea of, of unity together, but unity under, serve, uh, under serving one another. In our brokenness, the truth is we rarely evaluate ourselves or others properly. We, we have a problem looking in the mirror at ourselves. We have a problem looking out into the world. And the problem is, is that sin mars our vision. We, uh, we need to learn to develop a, an honest mindset, a, a mindset of humility with a desire to grow, to be used of God. We're going to look at that in chapter 4. It begins this way. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. All we are is servants. Let me ask you, how do you evaluate um, what makes a good pastor or missionary or teacher? Too often in Christianity, I think we find ourselves using the world standards of success and applying it to what makes one good. 
So we say, well, there must be a good pastor. They're on so many TV stations a week. Or they're on radio all the time. I hear them all the time. Or they've written so many books. Sometimes we'll, we'll say, well, they must be a good pastor because they've got X amount of people that go to their church. Or how many degrees that they have. Paul tells us in this section what makes a good leader, which is none of those things. If Paul is not saying, listen, follow me, I'm a good leader because I planted X amount of churches. Now he could say that. And we could look at the book of Acts and we say, wow, look at all these places. And every place Paul stops, even for a couple of days, he leaves and there's a church. We could say Paul is a good leader because of the end results. He's a church planner you know, that, that all the rest of us could learn from. Paul could have said, listen, I'm a good leader because of all of the spiritual children behind me, all the people I've led to the Lord. doesn't say that. He could say, I'm a, I'm a good leader, I'm a good pastor because I've got the title of apostle. A title that wasn't handed out very frequently. But from what we gather from church history, wasn't handed out after the last one died when John died in around 96, 97 A.D., there were a lot of things that Paul could have trusted in that said, listen, I'm a, I'm a good leader. But Paul tells us what makes a good leader and how we should evaluate ourselves as to whether we are serving well and whether we are leading well. All right, so this is a, a really good section dealing with what are we to be like as servants and as leaders. He uses two interesting words. He says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. He uses a couple of, of uh, statements here that we'll talk about. But in overall, what he's saying here is this. The lowliest of workers are entrusted with the wealthiest of valuables. The lowliest of workers are entrusted with the wealthiest of valuables. I don't know if you had something precious that you owned family you know, heirloom of some kind, or, or maybe, you know, maybe you're, you've been entrusted with the payroll, and it's your job to, to get you know, the payroll to the bank, or, or you've got something that's valuable, maybe, maybe, maybe a, a famous painting, and it's your job to get it to where it's supposed to be safe. And you couldn't do it. So who would you choose? Who would be the person you say, I trust this person so much that I can't do the job, I can't, I can't get to the bank, I can't take care of this valuable uh, thing, so who do I give it to? Well, this is the, the, the craziness of God. God entrusts the most valuable thing, the gospel, to the lowliest of workers. He says, let a, let a man regard us in this manner let or allow. It's, a, it's an interesting concept as he, as he constructs it here because it's a rather generic way to, to talk about self-evaluation. He could have said, let those in the church consider me this way or let those outside the church consider me this way. But, but he uses a very generic setup and, and it's a reminder that if we are going to be followers of Jesus and to serve him, it will require of a leader and of a follower to have a good reputation both inside and outside of the church. It is required of a, of a leader to have a good reputation inside and out of the church. So, so what's interesting is Paul doesn't say, listen, the good, the good pastors are the guys with the big churches, the big ministries. 
No, he, said, he said it begins this way. If you want to know what a good leader is, look at their reputation. How are they known both inside the church and outside the church? Keep your finger here. Let me just show you two illustrations. These are the passages dealing with pastoral qualifications. And, and, and you, you probably are familiar with them. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and then we'll look at Titus uh, as well. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's a trustworthy statement. Verse 1, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. Husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Skip down to verse 7. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into, a pro, into reproach and the snare of the devil. It's interesting because the first above reproach seems to be inside the body. You know, a husband of one wife, temperate, um, uh, prudent, respectable, teachable, hospitable, all of those things, right? That's dealing with, with how, how a, a man in leadership is to be viewed by, by those sitting under his ministry. But then he doesn't leave it there. He says he also has to have a good reputation outside the church. Somebody who is known in the community uh, with a good reputation, We've all probably known of, of, of people in leadership that sometimes get half of it right and sometimes don't. You know, you might look at them and you say, on the outward appearance, from what everyone knows about them, they look great. They've got all the tools of a leader. They, they show up on time, they, they put all the extra work in, and yet if you were to ask their family, what are they like at home? Or ask their friends, what, what is he like, you know, playing golf? What is his reputation like? See, it's not enough to just say, well, I did, you know, in public, I've got the public, you know, Phil persona, but in private, I can just let my hair down and just be who I am. It's required of a man to be found worthy. Flip over just a couple of pages in your Bible to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, in verse 5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach, second time, as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be both he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. It's required of a leader to have a good reputation. And so Paul, getting back to 1 Corinthians, says, let a man regard us in this manner. What he's saying, he says, he says my life is an open book. Examine me. I don't have a problem. Take a look. Look at the, at the shadows. Look at the hidden spots. Look at, the, at the, whatever, the parts that everyone knows about me. Let a man, both inside the church and outside the church. He says, what are we called to be? He says, let a man regard us in this manner. Two different descriptions. A servant of Christ and steward of the mysteries of God. The word servant here is interesting. Called to be a servant. Um, a little bit of Greek here, and not, not to overwhelm you too much. You know, sometimes we get these words servants, and if you were to take up a concordance and you were to do a, a word study of the word servant and you were to pull up all of the instances and you would get hundreds of examples. You would have Old Testament references, you would have New Testament references. Almost always the, the same word is used, uh, the English word is used, servant. But the problem is this, is that both in Hebrew and in Greek, oftentimes there are multiple words that are translated the same way in the same word, word English. Uh, so a great illustration of this is the word love. 
We've talked about this before. There are actually a couple of different Greek words that are used to describe the same English word. We use the word love, and it could be agape love, it could be phileo love, um, it could be eros love, it could be improper love. Um, and, and, and there's a fourth that's kind of alluded to as well. But we always just translate the word love, the, the English word. Servant is the same kind of concept. Oftentimes it is, it is, it is a multiple of, of other words. Now, Almost always in the New Testament, the word that is used for servant is, uh, is diakonos, which is the word that we get the office of deacon from. All right? It's a house steward. It's a manager. But that's not the word that Paul uses here, which is, is just translated in English word. The word that is used here in, in, is hupereritas, which, which is an interesting word. It's a very infrequently used Greek word. So you have to kind of dig a little bit to say, what does this word mean when Paul is writing to Corinth, who are very Greek, right, who understood Greek language and the nuances there, what would they understand hupereritas different from diakonos? How would they understand the differences and the subtle shades going on there that we just, we just kind of gloss over it in English? Well, the word is an interesting word because it quite literally means a second rower or a lower rower. Now think if you would back... Maybe you've seen some of those old pictures or you've seen some archaeology of the old ships. Now, we go on a, if you go on a cruise ship today, you know, there's an engine room and there's big screws that are turning the thing and it's moving down. And, you know, we, we, we kind of think of, of sailing and shipping and, and with modern engines. But that's a pretty modern thing. In, in Paul's day, they were propelled by one of two things, sails and oars. And oftentimes they were propelled by both. All right, because the sail was kind of slack and you might get a couple knots out of that. And so they, they hired a number of rowers. And they had these long, long oars that went way out, in, uh, uh, out from the boat. And so while the wind was pushing it, the, the rowers' responsibility was to propel it as well. And so it was kind of like a, a, a dual um, uh, engine propulsion kind of a thing. And the rowers themselves, they were usually slaves and if you might remember Ben-Hur, or you might remember uh, some, you know, a Gladiator, some of the current, current films you've seen how it's been illustrated, they were literally chained to benches, and, and, and they, their job was simply to row, and they rowed as long as the captain wanted the boat to move. If it was all day, if it was all night, didn't really matter. That was your job. It was the lowest uh, of servitude that you could be. You weren't entrusted with wealthy stuff. In fact, they didn't trust you at all. They chained you down. Because they, they knew that if you had the opportunity, if you got into port, you were going to gone. You were gone, right? In the water you go and see you later. You know, I'm out of here. Because it was not a pleasant job. You're in the bottom of the ship where the rats and the mice live and, and all the rodents are, where the seawater's pouring in. And you're down here in a dark place. You, know, they're not, they don't, you don't need any light. You're just rowing, right? You don't need a candle down there. You just do your job. And you're in the bowels of the ship it's rocking back and forth. There's seawater in there. If they're seasick, there's those smells coming. And anything above you is certainly coming down. And you're at the bottom. And the, the, the word here, hyperteros, is the lower class of that. There, were, there was an upper class, there was a hyperteros, and then there was a hyperteros. Paul says, I am a servant. I'm the lowest of the lowest slave class. I'm not even a slave that's worthy of the first deck. I'm at the bottom. I'm as low as it goes. This is, this is a, an honest evaluation of himself. The, the lowest class of, of servant, these are the, the, the slaves boss these guys around. 
All right, so this is as low as you go. Paul says, listen, let a man regard me this way. This is all I am. I, I'm not a house steward of the Lord. I am the lowest class of servant for Jesus. He says, I'm also a steward of the mystery. Now, the word steward here is quite literally the house manager. uh, So so we've got two levels here. He says, says, I've got a responsibility as a, a servant of Jesus. I am the lowest of the lows, but I'm also entrusted with the care of the master's house. And so what we have here is this kind of weird word picture that we kind of can gloss over in English, but, but what he's saying here is, is that he says that there's part of me that recognizes who I am, and I'm just the lowest of the lowest of slaves. And yet even if I'm the lowest of lowest of slaves, he's entrusted me as a steward with the mysteries of the gospel of God. And so there's this, this, this weird... Um, uh, 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 conflation that we have in, in leadership that, that there's, there should be an attitude of, of, of serving, of, of servitude, just like Jesus being willing to wash feet, whatever it takes uh, to serve. But then there is also a responsibility of administration and of leadership. The mysteries of God, of course, points back to chapters 1 and 2, the truth of Scripture. That, that those in leadership are called to serve to be the lowliest of servants, but yet they're also entrusted with the most valuable of, of cherished thing that God has given to us, his word. We're called to serve and take care of God's word. That both functions are important for those in leadership. That we're called to serve, but we're also entrusted with the mystery of God's word. And he goes on, he says, in this case, moreover, it is required of those stewards that one be found trustworthy. Paul is saying this is the, the, ultimate, the ultimate qualification of if somebody is worthy of, being, of, of leading somebody is, is that they have the right attitude about themselves and that they are found trustworthy. Trustworthiness is the ultimate characteristic of a true servant of Christ. It's required. It's not optional. You know, there are a lot of things when it comes to People in ministry that are optional. Um, a lot of times, if you look at, uh, at churches, you know, if a pastor leaves, they, they sit down, they brainstorm, and say, "What do we want in the next leader?" And usually, it's all of the deficiencies of the old guy. They, they're like, "Well, we want if, if the guy last guy couldn't sing, we want a singer. You know, if if the last guy didn't have kids, we want someone with kids." And oftentimes, that's kind of how we, we kind of look. We look at how are they deficient? How can we, you know, plus things up? How can we kind of balance things out in all of this? And Paul says, let me just tell you, this is, if you're, this is the bottom line what you should be looking for is trustworthiness. There are a lot of optional things. It's, it's nice to have, have, have a guy in leadership that's married, right? It helps to balance him out. It's nice if he has children, he understands what it's like. You know, there are a lot of, a lot of people like Bill Gothard that tell you how to raise their kids that never, never had a kid of their own. You know, a lot of people that are experts um, or, the, or the ones that have one or two kids that can tell you that have six or eight how to raise your homes, you know, because they, they know everything after one or two. Um, and, and, and there are a lot of experts out there. There are a lot of nice things to have. Right? It's nice to have someone that can sing. Or it's nice to have somebody that, that is even eloquent at times when they're speaking. But the number one requirement of somebody in leadership is trustworthiness. Because, you know, there are a lot of people in pulpits like this, that are much more eloquent than I am. They can tell a greater story than I can. They can sing better than I can. That, that maybe they seem on outside have it all more put together. But they're not trustworthy. And you know it. 
You know, you couldn't trust them any, you know, you wouldn't trust them with your wife. You wouldn't trust them to bring your kids home. You wouldn't trust them with a a $20 bill to return to you next week. And, And they're not trustworthy. And Paul says the number one requirement of a servant of Christ is trustworthiness. It's required, it's not optional. To be worthy of trust, that's what trustworthiness means. What is trust? Well, it's a, it's a financial term. It quite literally means, listen, I've entrusted to you, servant of Christ, the mysteries of the gospel, the word of God. It's a trust. I've given it to you. How you handle that will prove whether you're trustworthy or not. Our relationship with the word of God and how we, 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 uh, we interact with it proves whether we are worthy of the trust that God has placed into us. And whether the church, and then the trust of the church is placed into somebody. He goes on, he says, he says it's required of a man to be found uh, trustworthy. Now he uses this kind of, kind of this uh, conversational uh, um, back and forth with them. He says, it's not a very, it's a small thing if you want to examine me. I don't, he says, basically, this is what he says. He says, I don't care, you can look at me. I don't have a problem. Examine me, I'm an open book. So I don't care if it's you, a human court, and the human court here is just a reference to, to inside the church, outside the church. He says, I don't even examine myself. And they say, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to examine ourselves. Well, we will. We'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 11. But what he's saying here is, is he says, he says, if I were to look at myself, he said, I wouldn't find any fault with me. And that's usually our problem, right? Usually when we look at our, at our, own, our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, we make excuses for it. We say, well, it's not as bad. Or, or, you know what, I, you know, I got some problems, but it's not as bad as, and we list a whole bunch of people. Because in our own estimation, um, we, we, we administer tremendous amounts of grace into our own lives, and in other people's lives, we exercise tremendous amount of judgment. Boy, you need to get that area of your life fixed. You, you, boy, you need it better here. You need to, uh, you know, and, and of course, we just produce hypocrisy. But what he's really saying in this back and forth, he says, you know what, if I'm, if I'm going to look at myself, I'd say, I don't, have any, I don't have any issues, I've worked on it. He said, but you know, I don't even do that, why? Because it doesn't mean anything. The only thing that's going to matter is what Jesus will say about us. It's the only opinion that will matter. Paul was comfortable having others examine his own life. He was comfortable with, his own, with himself. He's basically saying, listen, you know what, I, 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 don't, I don't see any deficiencies in my own life. They're probably there but I don't see any deficiencies in my own life, but the only one that's going to matter is when the Lord looks at my life. So don't take this as Paul saying, I've arrived, I've reached some level of spiritual perfection. He's not saying that at all. What he's really saying is, is that a true servant of Christ is found trustworthy, and he's also willing to allow God to adjudicate the case in its proper form. Say, hey, you know what? Examine me, because God will do that. It's not enough to run part of the race well. We must finish well, too. There are a lot of people that start off well. There are a lot of people that that have run 10, 20, 30 years. It's required of us to be found trustworthy. That means we finish the race well. God will examine us and our motives and reward us accordingly. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15, those of you that want our kids, Study to show yourselves approved unto God. What does that mean? That, that means that God looks at our lives that final day and he stamp, a stamp of approval is placed over us. Good job, well done, my good and faithful servant. And there are a lot of Christians that say, well, yeah, I, you know, I was good for a while. I went to church for a while. I did this for a while. It's not enough. How are we going to finish the race? It's good to have a good reputation and to be thought well of, but it's imperative that God is pleased with us. 
It is imperative that God is pleased with us. There are times uh, when I work with, uh, with some of our BNN churches, there are times when, when churches get really kind of bent out of shape about their leadership, their pastor. And there are times guys have to leave because their, their ministry is done. And sometimes people go from one church and they kind of don't have a good reputation, like, oh, well, that didn't end so well. You know, it really doesn't matter what the church thinks about you. It only matters what Jesus thinks about you. And there are too many of us, and I find myself in this category oftentimes, too many of us people pleasers. Right? We want to keep the deacons happy because we don't want them to get angry with us. We want, you know, we want the women's group to be happy with us, and so we want to rock the boat there. We want the, and we go through this list, right? And we're constantly like a, like a clown in the, in the circus juggling, juggling hats while they're, hap- they're not happy with me or this is not going on. Or, Listen, what God is going to evaluate us on this, were you worthy of the trust that I put in you? Were you worthy? Maybe you've seen the, the, uh, the, the website that's out there. I think it's an Instagram account of the $4,000 uh, sneakers that preachers are wearing. And so they go through and they take pictures of, uh, of people in ministry and their extravagant outfits that they're wearing. And of course, we're familiar right, with, the, with the guys that are paid well and have the private jets and the large ministries. The truth is this. The state of the church is in crisis, but it sure does look good in crisis. You know, there's a lot of money that is being sent. There's a lot, there's a lot of, of polish on the outside. All right, we're, we're dressing it up really, really well. Man looks on the outside. And a lot of people say, that must be a good ministry. Look, he's got $4,000 sneakers on. He's preaching. He's, he's flying around the, the, the country in a Gulf Stream. People are buying his books. He's on TV. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. That's what we need to use to evaluate our ministry. So Paul, as he's talking about to this church at Corinth, he says, listen, you're focusing on the wrong things. You're focusing on Paul or Apollos or these, these different groups, but you're missing what God is evaluating us on. He goes on, he, he says this, he says, he says, now these things, brothers, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake. What is he talking about here? He's talking about, he's talking about the, the figuratively here is the buildings and crops. That was in chapter 3. Remember he said we're buildings and there's foundations and the foundation is the gospel of Christ. And, and he says, he said, I figuratively, Paul is really good at jumping back and forth sometimes. So he's, he's jumping back. He says, the figures that I talked about, the building that I'm building on and the crops that you know, Apollos is watering and what have you. He said, I've applied those rhetorically, figuratively to, to myself and Apollos for your sake so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? If you did, not, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We, you are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. What he's trying to do here. In a, in, a, in a kind of a rhetorical flourish here, is to remind the church at Corinth, and probably even himself, that all we have is a gift, so stop boasting. 
All that we have is a gift, so stop boasting. It seems that somehow in the process of Paul planning the church, and maybe it was just their character as people, is that they had hyper-inflated their valuation of themselves. It's kind of a very American thing. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon reminds us. But, but they really thought super well of themselves. Hey, we've got all these gifts. We've got all this stuff going on. And so Paul is, is trying to, in a, in a rather kind way, to set them back a little bit. Paul's um, both hypothetical and rhetorical flash here is quite interesting. And again, it's, it's hidden a little bit in our English. Um, so let me just explain a little bit about, about what's going on here. Is that, that what he's using is he's using a, 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 a Greek device, um, a, a hypothetical device. All right? So he's basically saying, let me just take your argument at face value. It's not true, but let me just take it at face value. You think that you're rich and you think you're kings and you've got all this freedom. Right? That's kind of what he's saying here in our American way of thinking of things. But he tells him, he says, stop becoming puffed up. He says, he, says, he says, why are you living this way? He says, I've, 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 you know, you've, for your own sake, I've, I've talked about myself and Apollos with these figures of speech. He said, he said, I've done it so that you don't become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. The idea here is of, of becoming puffed up. and It's an it's a onomatopoeia word. You know the onomatopoeia words are those words that sound like they are. Um, and, and in Greek, it's an onomatopoeia word. It's the, uh, the word um, that is, is used here is fusio, fusio. So you can kind of, it's puffing yourself, fusio, okay? And so it's this idea, why are you fusio, puffing yourselves up, okay? So it's a fun little word that, that you know, onomatopoeia words are fun anyways. Just saying the word is fun. But, um, but he's saying, he says, stop becoming puffed up. So why are you so arrogant, not only were they divisive and divided into these little cliques of Paul's group and Apollos' group and Peter's group, and, and, and he said, listen, Paul, Apollos and I would, would reject the, the, the characteristics of the groups. He said, well, you don't represent us. You think you do, but you don't. He said, in fact, you not only do you, you kind of clicked yourself up and grouped yourself up, but, but he says, now you're kind of puffed up and you're arrogant about these things. There is a, there's a tendency in mankind to get intransigent in our positions, right? Well, this is, this is the rock I'm going to die on. But the root of all of, of this puffing upness is pride. The root of that sin is pride. It's as if we want to play for our team, right? I'm playing for Team Phil. I'm playing for Team Paul. I'm playing for Team Apollos. And, and it really comes down to where, do, where does that come from? It's pride. So, so we can get in fistfights, you know, with somebody who maybe cheers on a football team differently than ours. Or we can, we, can, we can not talk to neighbors because you voted differently than I did in the last election. Or, or, or we, there's all kinds of things that we divide ourselves over. And it's really all, all this gr- is rooted in his pride. Now we look at it and say, no, it's because I'm pro-life or it's because I'm, you know, the Seahawks are just a better team than the Patriots or whatever. But it, it really is pride. That's really where this puffing up comes from. The root of the sin is pride. Apollos and Paul were just vehicles for the sin to be demonstrated in. And what Paul is saying here is this, is that all that we have is a gift from God. So why are we puffed up about it? The breath that we breathe, it's a gift from God. The gifts that we have, gifts from God. Our citizenship, our place. Listen, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, I was born in, you know, Endicott, New York in 1971. All right? I'm glad I live in this century. I'm glad I don't live 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. 
I'm glad we can, you know, I can call my parents up who live 3,000 miles away and talk to them anytime I want, almost, except for my dad when he's in bed. Right? It's great to, get, to be able to jump in a car and drive home and drive to where I want to go. I don't have to saddle a horse up. I don't have to feed a horse. I don't have to buy a horse. And I'm, I'm glad if I want to fly around the world that I can, if I can afford the ticket, I can jump on an airplane and fly wherever I want to be. It's amazing to live in this century. That's a gift. You didn't have to, God didn't have to, to put you in this century. God didn't have to put you in the home that you're in or give you the city. God could have, God could have put you in the middle of Iran. You could have been born in the middle of communist China. It's a gift that we have. All that we have. We had nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with the home that we lived in, the century that we live in, um, the language that we speak, what our citizenship is, what our gifts are, what our ability is, or even that we're still alive today. All of that comes as a gift from God. So why are we puffed up so often about the things that we had no, no control over? A couple of, uh, of phrases, you know, that, that kind of go back politically. Um, a couple of years, you know, the phrase, you didn't build that or it takes a village, is oftentimes countered by, politically, by the, well, we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that I'm the, the captain of my fate, that we strive and conquer. The truth is, is that all of those perspectives run counter to God's perspective, all right? God's perspective is, is that the ultimate source doesn't come from the village that you live in, doesn't come from your nationality or your heritage. doesn't come by pulling up yourselves on your own bootstraps. It comes as the ultimate, God is the ultimate source of all that we are, all that we have, all we ever hope to be. And so Paul is he's in this rhetorical flourish is saying, why are you guys puffed up? Why are you so arrogant about what you have? You didn't have anything with Apollos to do with Apollos coming to teach. You didn't have anything to do with me coming to Corinth to, to, to share the gospel with you. The, the apostles, he uses them as a, as a, a kind of in a juxtas, uh, juxtaposition to say, the apostles understood what we are truly called to be. Do you want to know the right attitude to have? Look at the apostles. He says, in this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty, are poorly clothed, are roughly treated, are homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the earth, the dregs of all things, even until now. The apostles understood what they were, what we were truly called to be, to live life with eternity in view. Like, wow, wouldn't it be great to be called an apostle? Well, all of them were martyred. Uh, was that a great thing? Are you willing to, to die? They understood, because they had walked with Jesus, they understood the life of Jesus and what he had called them to be. And... and, and um, Matthew 10, verses 16 and following, and in Matthew 16, he talks about, let's just look at Matthew 16, just, just for sake of time, I encourage you to look at Matthew 10 later on and read 16 to the end of the, of the chapter. It really is a great description of what Jesus sent his disciples out. But in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 24, he says, he says this, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. See, what Jesus calls us to do is pick up our cross. He doesn't say go live a life of ease and wear $4,000 sneakers and fly around in a Gulf Stream. Consider the life that Jesus has called us to. 
I think the apostles would be shocked if they could look into the, uh, have a glimpse into what, how the church is organized today and what we value as important. We need to trust in God. What does that mean to trust in God? He said when we're reviled, when we're blessed, we trust in God to take care of us. Trusting in God means simply this, lives that match our theology. Lives that match our theology. It's much easier to speak orthodoxy than it is to live it out. It's much easier to say, you know, I trust in God. Because it's, it's easy. Words are cheap. It's a lot harder to live those things out. What we believe is seen in how we live our lives. What we trust in is seen in our choices. So if, if the choices that we make are, I need a, a new job because I need a bigger bank account, then our trust is not in God, it's in a bigger bank account and a different job. If God has called us to do something, he is faithful to provide for us. The choices that we make inform our, what our theology is. We often say, well, I, but I speak orthodoxy, and especially when we're dealing with, with, with men, we're looking at leading, you know, leading the church. We say, well, well, they sound good. Do they live lives that mark out their theology? If their walk is counter to their words, go with their walk, not their words. Because it is the walk that informs what their real theology is. And of course, they would give up their last measure to serve Christ. And again, all of them will be martyred. They, were, they would be able to live out the words of a song from yesterday, yesteryear, that it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. They knew it. To them, they kept eternities in view. Eternity in view. They didn't live for the shallowness of this world. The Corinthians were living for the shallowness of this world. They were consumed with being Corinthianized. And for us in the American church, we are so consumed with being and having it all. And we sacrifice eternity for what is today. Maybe ask yourself this question. Instead of saying, which the Corinthian church was saying, look what I got. Say, look what my father gave me. Where's the emphasis? The emphasis is, you know what? All that I have is a gift from him. It's his. I'm going to stand before him and give a reckoning and accounting of all that he has given to me. It's not what I've done. It's not my own ability. It's all him. If we're going to serve one another and look for those who will be servants of us, we need to ask, what, is, what do they do with the gifts that God has given to them? Are they arrogant? Are they proud about it? Are they puffed up with it? Or they say, you know what? It's all Jesus. Paul uses up an illustration of his own life here just to kind of wrap this up. Uh, gives, and this is a great tie-in for, for all of us, certainly us men, but all of us certainly parents, those who you want to be parents. Paul talks about the, the good father, and he demonstrates both physical and spiritual childcare principles here. And we could camp on these all day long, so I'm going to get through them, and then and you can do your own study on, on these things. He says, I do not write these things to you to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For, you were to have, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. 
For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach every, everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let me just draw some of these principles out. And again, we could, we could do a whole sermon series on these, but we won't. That a good father, first of all, speaks truth. A good father speaks truth. And Paul says, I was honest with you. I spoke truth to you. There are two types of, um, of leadership. There's authority and there's authoritarianism. Okay, authority, we could define it this way. Authority is the ability to influence others. Authority is the ability to influence others. That we earn the right to give orders or make commands because we do it with the good of others in view. And so there is a sense of authority that comes from, from, from okay, I'll, I'll obey those orders or those commands because there is, a, there is a broader perspective here that is important. I speak with authority for your good and for the good of the organization. There's a lot of authority in our lives, right? We've got police officers, we've got government officials and various things. Um, and, and, and it's all predicated upon there is something that you know, speed limits and stop signs because there's a good for the good of the order, all right? For, so we obey the traffic laws for the good of the order, not because, you know, because I'm the sheriff and I just told you to do it. That's what authoritarianism is. Authoritarianism is enforcing strict obedience to authority at the expense of personal freedom. Okay, so, so there's two levels of influence in, in someone's life. There's authority and there's authoritarianism. Authoritarianism could be defined as domineering, dictatorial, dictatorial, demanding obedience, crushing whatever stands in the way. It could be described this way. Do what I say because it's what I want, because I'm the boss. And all of us have various levels of authority in our lives, various levels of influence. Some of them are authority. They're, they're able to influence, and, 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 they, and we respond to that appropriately. Some of them are authoritarian. Well, we like the job. I don't like my boss, but I need a paycheck, so... I'm just going to shut my mouth, chop the work, and do what I'm supposed to do. God delights in seeing us become like him. He is not seeking to crush us. Even at um, the final judgment, he uses man's own, own, man's own actions to condemn him. So what's the purpose of the great right throne? If they're not belong to Jesus, why even go through the whole process? Why go through the, 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 the theatrics of opening the books and examining their lives and their actions. Well, because God is using man's own actions to condemn him. God is not authoritarianistic, but he is an authority. This is what God says, as opposed to, this is what you will do. That does not preclude having rules. He says, listen, I, I spoke truth to you. It's important to speak truth. Paul will talk about rules and order in the church. It means we enforce those rules because we love, not because of our own selfish interests or reasons. Why does a church go through church discipline process? It's not because we like, well, I don't like the conflict. Right? It's not like because we, we, we think we're better than you. It's because of the good of the order, right? Same thing as parents. There are times that we have to discipline children, not because I'm the boss, I'm the dad, I'm the mom, 
You just got to do what I say because I love you. Because for the good of the family order, there has to be discipline enforced at times. We can see the, through the Bible, either through the lens of authoritarianism or authority. There are a lot of people that look through the lens of, uh, through the lens of the, look through the Bible through the lens of authoritarianism. Well, the Bible is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. You know, all God is is angry. And if I, you know, if I show up at this place, if I do this, if I engage in this activity, God's just going to squash me like a bug because He's an authoritarian, and I have no say in it. There are a lot of, a lot of churches that that's you know, thus says the Lord. You better conform to how I think you should live. That's authoritarianism. But God is an authority. He is seeking to influence us for good. God is, God is oftentimes seen as, as either kind or cruel. He's either seeing all about conformity or forgiving when we stray. God is an authority in our lives. And so Paul says, listen, part of, part of a leadership should be, and as, as parents is that we need to learn to speak truth into our children's lives or those who are under us lives, and we do it from a position of authority, not authoritarianism. We're seeking conformity for the good of the whole, not just because I told you to do it that way. Speak truth. He says, I, I write to you not to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. We need to recognize those who truly care about us. He goes on, he says, there, you could have had countless tutors, yet you only have one father. That's Paul. We need authority in our lives. A, a world without authority is really unlivable. We, we have this um, anarchist movement that's going on. It's nothing new, of course. Uh, you know, the, the, the younger generation kind of wants to throw off the older you know, trappings of society and culture. But the problem is this, that without a world without authority is really unlivable. Think about it. Just driving the car. Who goes at an intersection without any kind of authority? Without any rules of the road? Who goes? Who knows? We'd have accidents every time we went through an intersection. We'd be, I'd probably have an accident. Um, without any kind of authority, well, who builds the roads? How do the roads get built? Where do they get built? In what manner do they get built? Who ensures that the cars we drive are safe? See, just thinking about just cars, and then we think of all the other, other things in our own lives, that without authority, our world would be unlivable. Think of it this way, another illustration. Imagine if you would, you know, the, the, the New York Philharmonica, the Boston Pops, right? whatever, whatever orchestra, the Seattle, you know, um, you know orchestra. All of them, in and of themselves, are very talented musicians. Could, could do a solo and, and, and do it well and would people would come in and hear them. And it probably wouldn't even matter what instrument, because whatever it is, they can play it expertly. But without a conductor telling the parts what to do, when to do it, and how long to do it, and where to do it, it would be a mess. No one would show up for that concert. And so the authority in our lives is that person that's the conductor that is keeping things moving and going. Now, the conductor doesn't get up there with his little white baton and whack you know, the, the first chair violinist over the head because she played the wrong note. Uh, there, there, is a, there is an authority that comes there, and, and so maybe that helps you a little bit, but, but we live in this day and age where we want to throw off authority. We don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And oftentimes in Christianity, who are you to tell me I can't do this, or I, I shouldn't do that, or, or I should do X, Y, or Z? He said there are lots of tutors that are out there. Tutor here is the guide. It was a, it was a slave in, in Greek culture. It was a slave who was tasked with teaching the young child of the wealthy 
wealthy class basic skills like toilet training and dressing and, and what have you. So there were lots of, there's lots of, lots of tutors out there, but there's only one spiritual father. He was a spiritual father because he had led them to Christ. He'll go on in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. He said, I'm your, I'm your spiritual father. We don't save anybody. He's not saying, I'm your spiritual father because I saved you. But we lead them to Jesus. And because he had led them to Jesus, he said, I've got some authority in your life. Because you should be able to look back and say, yes, Paul thought so well of me, he loved me enough to share the gospel with me, to confront me in my sin and my brokenness, and he led me in faith to Jesus. And so he is an authority in my life. In Paul's day, his son usually imitated his father. Whatever his dad was, that's what son was. So if dad, like, like Joseph, was a carpenter, Jesus would have been a carpenter. Uh, you know, for, for Peter and James and John's uh, uh, perspective, dad was a fisherman, so they were a fisherman. If dad was a rabbi, you became a rabbi. That's what you did. You, you imitated your father. Right? It wasn't just a, I walk like him, I got the same smile as him. It was, this whole, it was a whole life perspective. Why? Too often today, I, you know, we want to be the opposite of, of our dads, but not in Paul's day. Paul said, listen, you, you imitate me. Why? Because you know I care about you. When we, if we want to be a good parent, right, it requires us to speak truth to our kids, to, to recognize whether we are living lives as authority or authoritarian. But it also requires us to demonstrate true care for our children. We need to set an example to be followed. Paul goes on, he, he talks about, um, he says, I've sent you Timothy, he's, gonna, he's my son. He, says, he said, now some have become arrogant, and, and you know that. But he had set this example so that Paul could say, not only did I lead well, but I led Timothy well, and so now I can bring Timothy in, and he can lead you well too. Do you want to know whether you're a good dad or not? Good mom? The test of whether you're a good father, good parent, is not how many clubs you're a part of. It's not how many times you showed up at a PTA meeting or a soccer game. The test of whether you are a good father, a good parent, is how your children live. That's the only thing that's going to matter. That's the only thing that will last. Now, they're individuals, and they're going to make their own choices, and sometimes contrary. Right? We can do the right as, as, a, as a parent, and our children can still grow up and make poor choices. But by and large, the, the general statement is this, is that you look at, a, you look at a, a child to see how good a parent they are. When we are told to obey our parents, it doesn't stop because we turn 13 or 18 or 45. See, I'm still a reflection of my parents in my upbringing at 47 years of age. I will be at 87 years of age as well. My parents will be long gone at that point, at least from a physical point of view. But I will still reflect their, the upbringing that I had in their home. The responsibility of obedience falls on the child to obey the parents. But the parent has a responsibility to lead their children well. The dad has a responsibility to lead his family well. You and I, dads, will give a reckoning for that, of how we've led our families. Now, we don't like external authority, but God gave it to us for our own good. 
Romans 13 talks about you know, the, the governor that's given to us for, for authority and, and what have you. Do you lead your family, dads, with authority or authoritarianism? Can you say to your children, live like I do? Paul could. Paul could. Now, does that mean that Paul got it right all the time? Of course not. Right? Paul says at other times, sinners, I'm the chiefest. Apostles, lowest. The things I want to do, I don't do them. The things I don't want to do, I do them. Right? He was not saying he was perfect. He was not saying he got it right. Dads, we don't always get it right. But can we tell our kids how we run our finances, how we interact with our spouses, how we treat others in the community and in church? You know what? If, if you do life like I do life, God will say to you, well done. Set an example to be followed. Another, another uh, uh, principle he draws out here is to keep your word. He says, I'm going to try to come to you. Of course, I have to say, if God wills, but I'm going to try to come to you. Paul always carefully, was always careful to admit his plans were always subject to God's will. But when he said he would do something, he tried to do it, to keep his word. Men of integrity are easier to follow as authorities in our lives. But here's the truth. Integrity is a long-term perspective. It's not enough to say, I'm a man of integrity. Integrity is something that is earned over the long term. It's a long-term perspective. But integrity could be ruined in one choice. Right? We could say, you know what, for 40 years I lived really well, and then I had a bad weekend. You've lost your integrity. And it will take a long time to build it back up. Are you a person with problems keeping your word? You know how I can ask? We'll know whether you keep your word? Your kids. Right? Your kids. You know, you might keep your word to your coworkers, to your boss, to your neighbors. Okay, I said I'd do it. I'm going to make sure I do it. Let me ask you, your kids, are you a person of integrity? Did you say you were going to take them for ice cream and then you didn't? Did you say you were going to be home to go to their soccer game and you weren't? Are you a man of integrity? Do you, uh, do you use promises to elicit responses, well, if you do this, I'll make sure we go get ice cream tomorrow and then renege on the agreement. As a, as a person who doesn't have integrity, it used to be a person's word was surety. Now we can't even trust the $100 bills that they give us, right? Because they might be counterfeit. We ought to keep our word as parents, as those in leadership. And then, of course, the last thing he says, which we'll pick up later on, is to disciple when necessary. No one likes to discipline unless they are authoritarian. But the truth is all children need discipline because we're all born rebellious sinners. Right? Discipline, though, is not always negative. That's what he says. What option would you like? Would you like me to come with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Your choice. Discipline is both positive and negative. Positively, we call it training, right? We potty train. We uh, put training wheels on so they learn to ride the bike. We train them to ride the bike. We train them to, to write their name. We, we train them in arithmetic skills. We, we train them how to be polite in company, right? And, and, and do the right thing and salute the flag and the other things that we do. That's training. That's positive discipline. The negative side is correction. Oftentimes, we think of discipline. We think, okay, there's, that's what's going on. Here's, here's the thing dads, moms. If you're simply a negative influence, all you are is an authoritarian. If all you do is come out with the rod or the belt or the stick 
or the grounding or whatever your method of punishment is, all you are is an authoritarian. It's negative. If you are simply a positive influence, all you are is an enabler. We're to be balanced. All right? We're not to enable sin and brokenness because they're rebellious and they need to be corrected. But we're not to always be a, a, a contrarian. It's my way or the highway. I'm the dad. I'm the boss. Obey me at all costs. We are to find a balance here. Paul says, I'll give you the option. Which, how would you like me to come? Jesus' view on authority is counter to the world's. Jesus said, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. The mightiest shall be the servant of all. In weakness, we are made strong. Humility brings glorification. Pride brings death and destruction. Those are all counter to the world. So, what kind of authority or leader are you? All of us are leaders. You may not think that you are, but all of us are. And if you disagree with that, go, go to a... Um, uh, a, a child care facility. And guess what? Even at two and three, they're leaders. There's always a boss and there's always followers. But even the followers are looking for people to follow them. Jesus' view on authority is counter to the world's. We're called to serve one another. You're not called to come here to be served. God has a job for you to do. When he is done with you, I am convinced that he will call you home. But, newsflash, it's not about you. It's about him. That's what Paul's saying. He says, we're here to serve. Ultimately, we're, all we are is second-tier second rowers. That's all we are. That's as low as you can go in a, in a culture, Greek culture. That's who we are. It's not about us, it's about him. Why do we serve one another? Because it's about him. We are directing people back to him. All we have is a gift from him. We're to use our gifts to serve him. So are you. One day, all of us will stand before God. What will he say to you about how you've lived your life? As a parent... Can you tell your kids to imitate you because you're imitating Christ? They go, oh, that's a pretty high standard. Well, it should be. It should be. Do you look like your spiritual father? Does he look like God? It's a high bar. God has high expectation of us. But you know what? He's never, he's never, he's never given us a task that he hasn't also given us the equipment to, to be successful in. It will require humility. It will require asking forgiveness. It will require us burying ourselves into his word and searching out answers from him and, and pleading for him and his strength and wisdom in our own lives. But he's never given us a task that we cannot accomplish. So, are we doing it? Are we influencing others towards Christ? Or are we just authoritarian? Do we serve one another? Do we love one another? Let's pray. God, thank you for those who have led us. Lord, in this room, we could trace our heritage all the way back to your disciples and then to you. Lord, there may be layers, gaps that we could, couldn't connect that journey to, but what an amazing thing. Lord, you have called us to lead the next generation. You have called us to be men and women who serve well, that are not just puffed up and arrogant about things that we have no control over, but in humility, Lord, we would speak truth to one another, that we would, uh, that we would work uh, in, our, in each other's lives um, for your good, to bring honor and glory to you. Lord, for many of us in the room, we, are, we have been granted positions of authority and responsibilities that go with it. 
It is easy to be lazy and be authoritarian and just say, I'm the coach, I'm the dad, I'm the pastor, just do it. Lord, teach us humility. Teach us that we ourselves need to be led, that we ourselves have clay feet, that we ourselves are prone to disobedience and we need to have grace and mercy and forgiveness for one another. But Lord, also have expectations and standards for one another too. Thank you for your love and grace to us and thank you for forgiving us even when we stray and we get things wrong. So maybe today would be a day where we start over as a dad, as a, as a wife, as a child and renew again our desire to be like you because you are a good, good father. Lord, I pray that you would bless our efforts as we have uh, some work day here to follow and have lunch together and all of the things that will go with it and whatever it is our hands find to do. And Lord, I pray that you'd unite us again to fellowship and worship again soon. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.